Jacob Kruger, and this is the Write Your Screenplay podcast. Um, I'm here with a special guest today. This is George Strayton. George teaches our action movie writing class here at the studio and really has a, a tremendous background um, in the action movie world. He's worked with Sam Raimi. He's worked with Bob Orsi and uh, uh, one of the writers on, on Spider-Man. Yeah, and, and Alex Kurtzman, his writing partner. Yes, and you have a Sundance award-winning film that's pretty exciting, yeah, huh? I'm, I'm excited. I was shocked and surprised, even though I believed in the movie yeah. very much, but you never know what's going to happen. Yeah. So it's, it's opening July 18th, I think, in 40 theaters across the country. Fantastic. And what's yeah. the movie called? It's called Alive Inside. Alive Inside. Um, so let's talk about The Amazing Spider-Man 2. Cool. Um, as you know, the, the purpose of this podcast, we look at all kinds of movies. We look at movies that work, we look at movies that don't work, and rather than looking at a thumbs up, kind of thumbs down uh, way of thinking about movies, we, we look at what can screenwriters learn from a movie, no matter how wonderful or no matter how flawed. Setting aside whether you loved Spider-Man or whether you hated Spider-Man, let's just talk a moment about what can writers take from this movie these movies are just really hard to make, I think, and uh, that's why it's really important to get that draft correct, because from that point on, there are 400 people involved in making that movie, because you need everybody from the studio executives, to the actors and the director, to the visual effects people, to I mean anybody, the stunt people, the choreographers, everybody has to be on the same page about the movie you're making. The, the editors, the, the, the you know, whoever's doing the score, etc., as opposed to making a, like a small independent film where there's four people and you can just sit in a room and go like, is that where we're, yeah, okay, good. And you can make changes really quickly in post, like really easily. So I think it's getting, trying to get that script as close to the movie you're trying to make as possible as a writer is the only thing you can do because you're not involved usually. You're not involved after that. It's, it's changing over time as you get more people crisscrossing between TV and film, like Bob and Alex and J.J. Abrams and Damon Lindelof and... People who who are who made a name for themselves, or Joss Whedon, made a name for themselves in both arenas. So that crisscross is definitely happening more um, than it was before. But really, the director is in charge once you go into production or even pre-production. The director is taken over. So you you really have to do the best possible job of getting across in a clear way, but read clear but readable way. You can't like take a page to explain, you know what one building looks like, like the Oscorp building. Yeah. Totally cool looking building. You have to figure out a way. You can't just say like cool looking building. You have to give some one line description that make, gives whoever the designer is going to be, whoever the production designer or the, or the, the storyboard artist is or whoever it is that's going to decide what that's going to look like, the director. Um, you need to try to get that in there so everybody can build off of that. In my experience, the less you give them, the more chaotic it's going to turn out. So, for example, I wrote a film uh, for Paramount called Dragonlance. And what I noticed after the film was done, and I was a, I was a writer, and I got to be there present. It was an animated film. And, I, and I, it was Kiefer Sutherland and, and Lucy Lawless were the stars, and they were fantastic. And I got to be there for the recording of the actors. And obviously that's happen, that happens before the, the animation is done. And I noticed when I saw the final film... Because I was all the everything that they the actors did was great, 
they were all fantastic. They were great. They had ideas. They were they worked, you know, with the script in the way it was written. And then had, if they had questions, they asked them. If they had other ideas, we could talk about them and in some cases use them. Um, so that was all great. But when I saw the finished film, I realized that in the scenes where I really wrote out what happens in this action sequence. So I'm only talking about action sequences. What I wrote was specific. Like, I'm just going to make something out. Like, character A fires a bow. We're with, we're with the arrow as it flies through the air and pierces a shield and enters the chest of, of an orc. Something like that. That's what I got. That was on screen. If I said... And then and continuing like that. If I said a massive battle ensues... And I just gave kind of generics, like, we see the uh, brigade of orcs come down and wipe out, uh, you know, a, a group of heroes, and whatever. It was, it, it, it was as generic as it sounds. Because I wasn't giving the director anything to work from. Um, and I think that's the key as a writer. You have to be specific, and it may get completely changed. But the t- you've established the tone, and that's the responsibility, I think, of the writer. After that, you really lose the ability to affect what's going on. I mean, maybe you're a producer and that's great, but oftentimes you're the producer and that doesn't mean anything. (laughs) So um, you have to have as much on the page as you can get there and then hope that, um, not that they follow every single thing that you do, but that they get what you're going for. And if they have something better, but it's in the same tone, great, it's still going to work. If you leave it just open and vague, you're opening yourself and then film up to things that don't fit, whatever they are, whether it's tone or whether it's theme, um, whether it's a consistent character. So, yeah, it's really, it's, it's just really important, especially, to me, it's harder than writing a drama. For me, it's, I have to write a drama first and then add in an action movie. Mm-hmm. Like, it has to be built on that. Or a comedy and then an action movie. Like, I'm, if it's Beverly Hills Cop, let's say, or something like that, which they just happened to announce they're doing another one. Uh, for, for, for 2015 you have to you have to make it work as a, as, as a drama or a comedy and then you have to make it work as an action movie too on top of it so you're doing a lot of work as the writer um, and you have to understand how to do both so that you can have as, you know much on, that, on the physical page as you can before you, you're kicked off and, you're, and, and, and your baby is out there and somebody else is taking care of it So let me ask you one more question. Um, This is probably a little less of a Spider-Man question and more of a a question for, uh, you know, young writers who, emerging writers who who want to break into action movie writing. Um, So, you know, those writers, obviously, it would be very nice if someone knocked on your door and you're a brand new writer and says, hey, you know, we're doing Amazing Spider-Man 3. What do you think? You want to be part of it? Uh, but obviously, that's not really the the way that that happens. Right. Um, and most young writers don't have the resources to go out and, and option one of those property movies. Yeah. Um, so in a way, that's a blessing and a curse, right? Yes. It, it, it's a blessing in that you don't have a studio saying, we need this chase scene for the video game, we need this set, we need this moment, we need this for the ride. You know, you don't have to deal with that. Right. But on the, on the other hand, what... What are producers looking for when they... Because I think sometimes it's hard for, uh, you know, a young writer goes and sees Spider-Man and says, oh, well, it doesn't actually have to be that good, right? You know, 
it doesn't have to be that pitchable, so there's not really a pitchable hook right. um, in Spider-Man 2. Uh, the main character doesn't really want anything for most of the movie. You don't have the traditional structure. Um, things are uneven, you know, and I think it's easy for young writers to think, oh, well, I just have to make a couple of fun chase sequences or some cool-looking stuff, and magically, you know, I'm going to have the kind of career that right. Bob... And yeah, well, there's and JJ yeah. and Simon yeah. Kinberg and all the the you know Damon Lindelof and all the top you know guys have. Yeah, I yeah. T- I totally understand why they they would think that. I think a, a few things. One, um, it, it's really difficult to know what got on the screen versus what was on the page, and I do know for a fact that these guys work. They spend a lot of time on these scripts, a lot of time, and they have a lot of people to please. And, uh, and oftentimes those people have contradictory wants. So it's how to navigate those waters. So there's, there's, a, lot, there's a lot going on, especially when $175, $200 million in production is riding on it, plus another $75 million in marketing. So, so it's difficult on that, you know, in, in, in that world to, to make those movies. So while you might go see a film and, and come away and, and not like it, that doesn't mean the writer didn't do an amazing job. You know, it doesn't mean the writer's not good. That could, this guy could be fantastic. You might have been blown away. So it's hard to say. And sometimes it's the writer's fault. Like, you know, that happens. And sometimes things don't work for reasons people don't know. When you're coming at it as an emerging writer and you, you're creating your own action film, like let's say Inception, for example, that's an original movie that's not based on a, you know, it's not an open writing assignment, which is what those are called normally when you are brought into the studio to write whatever next franchise movie. So you have your own original idea, and what they're... It depends on the producer, of course. Um, some producers are looking for the what I call the Liam Neeson movies, which have been really popular and have been expanding, and Kevin Costner's doing them now, and et cetera, which are these 30, 30 to $35 million action movies um, that play well all across the world because they're primarily action, the very simple storylines about, you know, your your loved one has been kidnapped in some way or something like that is going on and you need to rescue them. Okay, I that's got a hook. I can pitch it. It doesn't cost a lot of money relatively. I can get a good actor, um, but an actor who's willing to do it because of whatever reason. Um, and uh, I can shoot it quickly and, you know, it's not... There's not an entire franchise resting on it. Like, um, and everybody's thinking... Everybody's... No, no one's... When the first... Uh, Taken movie came out and I was like this is a whole franchise we can't mess this first one up like everybody you know there's not as much you know pressure on, on the film so as a writer who's doing their own thing there's no pressure you shouldn't feel any pressure you know you, don't, you shouldn't feel like you're trying to create a franchise like don't do that to yourself <laughs> just try to write that don't like for example like if you have a great idea for the second movie use it in the first movie <laughs> don't don't save anything because there may not be a second movie because the first movie wasn't good enough so if you have any great idea, as long as it fits, if it's a random idea that doesn't fit, okay, yes. But if you have a great idea and it works in the first movie, put it all in the first movie. Yeah, and when we can think about Spider-Man, think about how much stronger the movie would have been if she died at the end of Act 1. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, and see, what's interesting to me is that Bob and Alice got in, and, uh, and Jeff Pinkner got involved on the Spider-Man, Amazing Spider-Man 2, they weren't. They didn't work on the first one, um, and and they were hired to write a trilogy. So two, three, and four. So I think for them, this is Act One. Yeah. 
So in their mind, this is I didn't speak to them about this at all. Um, but my guess would be just knowing them that they they're looking at that as a bigger picture and feeling like okay, that's the end of Act One for them. And now we're going to see Spider see Spider Man in Number Two go into a more of an Empire Strikes Back dark yes. you know thing. Um, and that's such an interesting thing because. When you're a big writer, mm-hmm. like these guys, you can do that. You can yeah. get away with saying, you know what? I got plenty of time. You see this yeah. in Game of Thrones, too, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Where we got, people are going to come back. It's okay. We got plenty of time. Let's set it up in this movie. We'll deal with it next. Right. But when you're a young writer, you don't have that option. That's true. You got to nail it in this movie. Yeah, no, you have to nail it in the movie, and so what people are looking for is, um, A, they don't want anything longer than 110 pages. That is your maximum. Do not hand in anything, anything more than 110. If you can be between 100 and 105, that's perfect. Because then they're going to look at it and go, like, oh, great. That, their, their first reaction to your script is going to be like, oh, thank God. I only have to read 105 pages. I mean, you're going to be lucky if they get through 30, but they at least know that if they like it, they only have to read 105 pages. So great. So already they have, they're happy. And, and I've, I've heard it anecdotally, but I've actually seen it where they weigh the script like just in their hand. They like kind of see how much heft it has. And so it's because they have so much to read. And no one's trying, trying to be a jerk. And no one's trying to, you know, uh, be holier than thou or like, you know, hold things over you because like your script is slightly too long. But they just have so much to get through. They only have so much time. So I, I think it's writing a script that fits into that uh, amount of space. Have something really cool that's action-related every 10 pages. So a 100-page script, you need 10 things. They don't have to be action sequences. All 10 don't have to be action sequences. So you don't need, like, a fist fight and then a sword fight. And then, uh, you know, you, you can be, a, you know, some kind of fist fight then. And a chase sequence. Then it could be an infiltration sequence, like, you know, the... I think probably one of the most famous ones is Tom Cruise in First Mission Impossible when he's on the wires. Like, that's a great intense like action sequence, but there's nobody's fighting anybody. You know, it's just like really like that's part of what makes an makes an action action movie. So if you have ten of those, that's enough time where like the readers are reading and they go like just as they're getting starting to go like, oh, this is kind of slow. Oh, here we go. All right, well, what's happening here? And if you make each of those really awesome. they're going to love you because they're going to know you can write great action. Because as you probably see a lot lot of what sells films are the trailers and what you see in those trailers is the action moments. So they're looking for like, give me, what's a unique thing, action thing I've never seen before? So I think there should be a focus on that um, primarily. But that's not to take away anything from having a good story. If you have, we don't care about the action if we don't care about the characters. So you don't ignore the characters is my second piece of advice. Like make sure that the action we're seeing is a physicalization of the emotional journey that these characters are on. So whenever, so wherever you are in the script, the action scene, you can't, you shouldn't be able to mix and match. Like I'm gonna take action scene three and make it number seven. And I'm gonna, that shouldn't, that shouldn't work because those specific action moments should have a, a tone and a quality quality to them that evokes um, in a visceral way, in a visual way, in, you know, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an auditory way, in every other way, what the character's going through at that moment emotionally. So like, the moment when Gwen gets killed in Spider-Man, 
too, you, it's dark, uh, and they shoot it dark, and like j- j- that, just that moment, even that action sequence is probably the darkest action sequence of the entire film, because they know they're leading up to that. So you know, have great action moments, but don't make them random. Make sure they come out of character, and I think that's the most important thing because you have to keep those people entertained for the, you know in between those ten pages. But then when we get to the action sequences, they really need to be engaged because they want to know what's going to happen to these characters. And by the way, each action sequence should have some kind of different completion, like in, in the way you um, teach, just any kind of writing. The scenes should, or sequences should end with some kind of completion, whether they've succeeded, failed, or something in between, or something else takes over. And that's the same thing with the action sequence. So that's another way to vary them is to sometimes they fail and if they don't if they never fail we're always going to think they're going to win so it's boring you know and I think that's one of the biggest problems with Spider-Man is you have a villain who can channel freaking electricity right you have a villain who can disappear into the power grid yeah and the worst thing that happens to Spider-Man is one of his cobwebs things gets fried and you know, this is one of those standard principles, and it's so interesting because it's a standard principle in drama just like it is in action, which is whatever the worst thing that can happen is, right. it damn well better happen. I thought the same thing, and then I remembered that there was this moment, and I just think it's glossed over, and that's the problem, where basically... It's like another example of, of well, the writer might not have hit it hard enough for the or, director to realize. Or, or, or somebody. You know, somebody somewhere didn't hit it hard enough. I, you know, whether the, it was the cut that was wrong. Yeah. You know, if you go two editor, frames yeah. too long, you could ruin it. Yeah. In fact, I saw an interview with, with uh, the guys who do Game of Thrones. Yeah. And they were saying, sometimes we, like, it's a matter of four frames. And we got to, you know, we're cutting it earlier or later. Four by four frames can make... All, and by the way, there's 24 frames per second for everybody. Um, so that's not very long. <laughs> and it can make all the difference. But... It, in, in so, in, so with regard to that particular moment you're talking about in, in Spider-Man, that is a symptom that the fact that his web slinger, web shooter gets broken is a symptom of what the bigger picture is, which is, and, it, and, and it's there, but it's so glossed over, I don't even remember what the line is, but I remember that I, afterwards that it, it was there, was that he can't defeat Electro, was the idea. By himself, Spider-Man cannot defeat Electro. And here was the symptom, you know, the, the physical eye symptom was like his web slinger, which he's been using throughout the entire movie constantly in different ways, which by the way, I thought they did a great job with inventing different ways to use the webs, is, you know, that, that's the symptom of him not being able to defeat Electro. But there was some moment where it was made, I was going to say clear, but it was tried to be made clear that Spider-Man cannot defeat Electro alone. And that is why later when Gwen, when he tries to leave Gwen behind and then she so- shows up, and because she's worked for Oscorp and clearly is a genius when it comes to electronic things, she actually helps. She's the one. She's the only one who can help him defeat Electro because he can't do it yeah. on his own. I agree with you that thematically it's laid in there yeah. and it's laid in there with dialogue. Yeah. But the truth of the matter is, he does subdue Electro. Yeah. In that first sequence, right? The first time they face off in Times Square, which right. is, I mean, that's a really beautiful scene. Oh yeah, there's it was great. Yeah. there's some really incredible visuals there. Yeah. But you have, he does subdue Electro. That's, That's how true. they're able to, 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 to take him. Right. And so I think it's one of those examples of sometimes the, 
the character has to lose. Right. If the character never loses, and I don't think, except for losing Gwen. Gwen. Yeah. No, I think you needed the same thing to happen within the Electro storyline. Um, uh, I thought with Harry, it was there because they had a pre-established relationship. Yeah. So you can you you can you didn't need to do as much. Yeah. Well, because these stories are actually even like you were saying, even though there's a movie, these are action movies. It's really about the the hot relationships. Yes. And that's why Max Electro is such a challenging character because he really, prior to becoming Electro, he only has one interaction. Yeah. With Spider Man. Yeah. And he has a nice interaction with Gwen. He does actually. I thought that was my favorite moment yeah. of, of of Max. You know, yes. As opposed to Electro, but as Max. So if it were like with one more beat. Yeah. If there was a moment between Electro and Gwen, for example, yeah, then you would really have a structure for for Max's story, right? You know, and for Gwen's story, and for like how do all these different tones lay out together? That's true, and you know, and having seen things happen before in, in other big action movies, that scene could have existed in the script. And, they were certainly uh, setting it up. It, uh, that's what I mean. And, the, and these guys are, are really good at following through on things. Like they, they're very con- conscious of, of what they're doing. I mean, they've been doing this for a long time, and they're really good at it. And like literally, you talk to them, and they can, it, they can spin a story for you, for you in, a, in a few seconds. Like Their minds work so quickly in storytelling language, um, so, which, which makes me believe that, 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 that it was there somehow. And... Um, I know, for example, in Transformers, you know, the first assembly came in, and it was three hours long. And the studio was like, we, we can't... There's a business side of this where we have to have a certain number of showings per day. If the movie's three hours, we can't have the same number of showings per day. And so this is one of the audience. reasons it's got to be 105 pages. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And that movie wound up being... Transformers 1 wound up being 215, I believe, around there. So 45 minutes was cut out. And unfortunately, a lot of what was lost is character stuff. So that's why I feel like because there was this, those two moments, I wouldn't be surprised if you, when the script is available and we can look at it, that there might have been another moment there because it was set up so perfectly for that. But if I'm an emerging writer, I have complete control over what people are reading. Because as a writer I don't have, who's getting these open writing assignments, I don't, have, I don't have complete control over what people are seeing. But, you know, when I'm sitting in my own house and writing my own script and I'm just sending it to people to read, I have total control. I have control over what it looks like on the page, which is important, by the way, like giant chunks of black, you know, paragraphs with no breaks. Bad idea. They just skip that page. It's not going to be read. I don't care care if you have the coolest action sequence ever. They were going to skip that page. Um, So you have complete control over all that and take advantage of it because when you're successful... You're not going to have that luxury. So this is the time you need to take to get on the page exactly what you're seeing. Like you need to visualize the film and have those moments in there. And because it's an action movie, especially because it's an action movie, try to make them visual. Like anything that is um, really important to either the plot or the character, which by the way should be the same thing, make it visual. It's interesting, uh, you know, I have a, a seminar coming up on Frozen. And oh, yes, yeah. It's interesting thinking about musicals. Right. Because, in a way, action movies are built a lot like musicals. I, I would agree with that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you have the book, which is the, the dialogue and the action that happens between the characters. 
And then you have the, the musical sequences. You know, I did a project with Alain Bouvier and called Michelle Schoenberg, uh, who oh, yeah. Rob. And when you're, you're working on a musical, what you do is, is you write the script, and then the composer comes in and the lyricist come in and they say, oh, this is the most awesome thing you've got. We're turning this into a, mu- a musical number. Okay. So from a kind of organic writing perspective, it's the idea of, you know, take the most powerful dramatic sequence in your action movie and turn that into an action sequence. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, if this is the moment where he where he loses his girlfriend, right. make it the sequence where the Green Goblin destroys her. Right. You know, if this is the moment where he finally, you know, gets the courage to ask the girl out, you know, let him do it while he's, you know, jumping out of a helicopter. The idea that the most dramatic things, the most powerful elements, need to be handled inside the action. Yeah. But that the action is really just like the conveyance for the character's journey. Actually, there's a really good example of that in a film. I I went to Columbia for my MFA in film, and one of the teachers who was an alumnus and came back and taught a master class was Simon Kinberg. Uh, and it was amazing. And it was about, you know, the realities of, of making these big movies and the, the two giant stars, a movie that took two years to shoot, um, you know, lots of reshooting and et cetera to, to make the film that eventually everybody saw. And there's a great sequence in the middle of the movie where, um, and, and Simon was telling us that there's initiated when he first had the idea for the film it was about going through a divorce like what is that what is that like you know and and there's like five stages and he was looking at all five and how they played out and so in one of them he did this great action sequence where you don't even know it's gonna be an action sequence it's at a restaurant he brad pitt goes to meet angelina jolie and they sit at a table it's all these people are around, you know, older folks. They're, it's like a very upscale place and um, et cetera. And then you, you notice that, like, you know, Angelina Jolie moves her, you know, legs and, like, there is revealed a gun, you know, and, like, the, and then they wind up dancing and, like, basically they might shoot each other. And then there's another great scene when they're having, they wind up having sex and, like, you know, they're beating the crap out of each other. But they're, but, you know, it's, it's, about the relationship, like there's def- the, what's going on is just a physicalization of, of what's happening emotionally between those two people. So, talk a little bit. You have this class coming up, uh, yeah, action, writing the yeah. action movie. Mm-hmm. Um, talk a little bit about what happens in that class. How is that class structured? What are, what are students going to learn in that? I, well, it's a four. So it's a four session class. But we're going to cover a, few, a bunch of things, but. Um, and we are going to spend a little bit of time at the end talking about the business side just because I think it's important. It's one of those uh, parts of the film business that you really need to... There's not a lot of room for mistakes because these, there's a lot of money riding on, riding on these films. So in order to get um, your shot, you really got to be good. You really have to read your spec and be like, this guy gets it. This guy is going to turn in something. I'm not going to lose my job because I hired this guy to write a script for a giant franchise movie, like you, so uh, you 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 know, we'll spend a little bit of time on talking about like what does the reader expect and how do you write for a reader. Most of what we're going to talk about is how do you get action on the page, which is surprisingly difficult. Um, when I first started writing, 
action, I would watch a Bond movie or whatever it was, and I would try to emulate that, that without having seen the script. Watch the film, try to write that. And my action sequences always tended to be seven to ten pages. For, you know, it was the same length in, uh, you know, that I thought was, uh, I was seeing on, on, in the film was what I was writing. Like the same number of, let's say, action beats. Were, took me ten pages to write, and it was like ten action beats, but it was five minutes in the film, and it was ten pages of my script. So what I started to do was hunt down every action script I could find and figure out how did they get this, how did they write this in such short amount of pages but convey what was actually going on, like in a specific way. Because then I started saying, at first, my first step was I'll just write it in a kind of generic way. Like there's an action sequence and here are the highlights. She jumps over there from one building to another. He jumps after her. They run across more rooftops. And I kind of tried to cheat it. And then what I realized was that's not how it was done once I started reading all these scripts, especially with people like Tony Gilroy about the Bourne films. It's all there on the page. It's all there on the page, and you got to get it there, but you only have four or five pages. So how the hell do you do that? And not only that, but how do you write it so that people understand what they're going to see in the film? And also, how do you come up with cool, unique action sequences like no one wants to see something we've seen a million times before and long gone are the days when you can write the French Connection and for the coolest action movie action sequence in the movie write the words the coolest action car chase we've ever seen on film I think that's the line the coolest car chase we've ever seen on film that's the line that one line and it's like five minutes of amazing great cool stuff but you can't do that anymore that's not happening. So you do the, don't do that, please. Um, so we're going to go through and talk about um, how to come up with really cool action. Um, and I, I have, you know, there's a lot of different ways to think about it and to brainstorm and to f- figure out what works on film and get it on the page. And then we're also going to talk about, you know, kind of to bring it all full circle to what, what we're talking about, which is the tone. So there's something that I've heard called different things. I've heard it called Mood Q, I've heard uh, Jessica Hines, who's one of the teachers here uh, at the studio, calls it priming the audience. Basically what you're doing is you're establishing the mood so that the action works in the way you want it to. So it doesn't come off silly when you mean it to be serious. So I'll give one example from Raiders of the Lost Ark, because I think that's probably a film most people have seen, especially people who want to write action. Uh, And these are the kind of things we'll talk about. Early in the film... They're in the Amazonian jungle and they're hunting for this idol. At one point, and they have these Quechua uh, uh, porters with them. And at one point in, in that sequence, they arrive at this um, idol. They cut away the vines, they see the stone idol, and suddenly bats fly out of it. Just boom, bats fly out of it. And the people get scared, the characters get scared for a moment. Not Indy, of course. <laughs> We actually haven't even seen Indy's face at this point, but uh, the, the, the other characters who were there like at the, in that moment get freaked out and some of them run away. Well, does that push the story forward? No. Is there anything we needed to know? Like, does it, is it that be, for something that happens later about that? No. Like, did the bats come out and attack Indy on the way out? No. I mean, it, you, you can make all these cases for taking that out of the movie because it's not doing anything. But it is doing something, and what it's doing is setting up the suspense and making you up on the edge of your seat. It's the same thing in a horror movie when they throw the cat out at you. You know, the cat leaps out at you. Oh, it's just a cat. Thank God. But your heart is racing, and that's where we want you. 
So we as the and you got to do that on the page. You don't have the visual. You don't have auditory. You have the words on the page. So we really are going to like delve into that. Like how do we create the the movie on the page in a way that an audience is going to experience it at a movie theater. So what when the reader, the first reader who's going to be you know, 23, 25, just out of film school, etc. read that script. They're going to see it. They don't, you're not leaving it up to them to direct the movie, to act the movie, to invent the specific moments of those action sequences. You're going to give them exactly what the movie is so they can go like, this is awesome. It's all here right on the page. This person knows what they're doing. We should hire this. You know, even if we don't want to make this particular script, we should hire this person to write one of our other scripts because they totally know what they're doing. So we're really going to specifically focus on how to create those action moments in a way that's going to work on the page um, for people reading it, you know, uh, that you want to impress. And it sounds like it would even be a good class for a drama writer. <laughs> well, actually, you know, it's funny. I was thinking about that earlier today. Uh, you can have great action moments, which you people probably don't think about, but in a drama it's really dark, like one of my favorite movies is American Beauty. Well, I mean, we know from the beginning that Lester's gonna get killed. We know he's gonna get killed. I mean, he tells you, well, I mean, this, I'm gonna die by the end of this movie. So how do you make, we already know he's gonna die. How do I make, how do you make that, that sequence at the end there suspenseful and interesting? Because don't forget, it's, don't be, I mean, maybe people may, maybe forgot, because I forgot after the first time I watched it, but you don't know who's gonna kill him. There's actually a question of who is going to murder him. We don't know. And that's, that's really great storytelling because it's, is it gonna be his wife? We don't know. Like, and, and it's the way that, the, that Alan Ball, the writer, structured that, and another guy that came from TV actually, interestingly enough. But he, had, he put in there very specifically the moments that we are going to see that make us wonder and are really worried, despite knowing he's gonna get killed, we're on the edge of our seats. Like, is it gonna happen now? Is it now? Who's gonna do it? You know, like, it, but no one's gonna say American Beauty is an action movie at all. But you, you can find a plethora of dramas or comedies. Comedies actually have action set pieces all the time. I mean, think of that, just the Hangover movies. I mean, there's, there's action moments going on all over the place. Um, you, you, not traditional action moments like a Christopher Nolan movie or a, Michael Bay movie or something like that or Tony Gilroy but they're there and so that's how do you get that on the page without especially in those kind of movies because the audience the reading audience I mean not the not the audience in the theater is expecting to read a drama or expecting to read a comedy so you really got to get in there get your action in make it part of the film and then get out and so the only way to do that to really know how to write action in what I say the way I put it is in a poetic but efficient way so that it's very clear but it only took up a few lines to get it get it in there and it's that you're you're in and out you had the, the impact you wanted and now we've moved on and we're, we're continuing so yeah it's actually uh, I think uh, in almost all films you probably can find a moment where there it's it's action there's what people would call action because action is suspense action is you know lots of different emotions that you want to have in, in any kind of any kind of film. That class starts on June 11th, and then you'll have a level two version of that class on July yes. 30th. And if you want to read more about that class, you can go to uh, writeyourscreenplay.com slash action. 
That's writeyourscreenplay.com slash action. So, George, thank you so much cool. yeah, for your time. Cool, yeah, great conversation. Yeah. And uh, happy writing to all of our listeners. Mm-hmm.